0: Hi, this is Joe Hackman with the Manufacturing Advocates Podcast, and today I'm talking with Harry Moser, and Harry's the founder and president of the Reshoring Initiative, and uh, they do some pretty amazing stuff for U.S. manufacturing. So, Harry, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what uh, the Reshoring Initiative is doing today?
1: You well, know, I'm a manufacturing guy. I, I've got engineering degrees from MIT and an MBA from University of Chicago. I worked in... The foundry equipment, machine tools. For 25 years, I was the president of Charmee, which became Agi Charmee and is now a GF Machining Solutions. So that's EDM machines, five-axis milling machines, laser machines, all kinds of things like that. So I, I've, uh, I know thousands of manufacturers around the country, and I'm I'm committed to to their success.
0: Great. So you know, we we had a little prelude talk and. It's funny because one of my favorite questions came up just inadvertently in that conversation. But uh, I wanted to talk to you. I think you're in a perfect position to speak knowledgeably about the fairness issues that affect competitiveness of U.S. companies. Can you kind of give people the rundown on what the top maybe two or three issues are that really affect the fairness and make it very difficult uh, or, or way more challenging for a U.S. manufacturer? I guess the first
1: is to, is to say, are things fair? And and, and I'd say clearly they are not uh, judged by the fact that we have a uh, goods or manufactured product trade deficit, which has been uh, in place. So it's been a negative balance since the 70s and currently averages about $500 billion per year. And that represents about 4 million manufacturing jobs. So So we have let's say given to the rest of the world, you know, four million manufacturing jobs, which would be if it, when they come back, that'll be a twenty-five or thirty percent increase in our manufacturing. So to, to me, it's 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 obviously clearly uh, patently uh, unfair. Uh, the, the the solutions are are complex, like most big things in life. The uh, uh, this is probably the, the one that almost everybody would agree upon would be uh, skilled workforce, that the, the U.S., for, for a developed country, does a, does a poor job of training the skilled workforce. And we don't have the apprentices. We don't have enough people with certificates, community college. We, we've got too, too many reporters and, and not enough tool makers, so to speak. And, uh <laughs> Uh, and, and that's the one thing totally within our boundary. Nobody in the world can complain if we do it. And that's how Germany, Switzerland, Austria have done so well. So that's number one. Number two, uh, the dollar's always too high. You know, we, we're, we're the financial haven for the world. People send their money here to keep it safe. That forces the dollar up. Great place to be a bank, horrible place to be a factory. Got to get the dollar down 20, 30%. The corporate tax rates, way too high. Uh, uh, Essentially, all of our trading partners have value-added taxes. We ship ship stuff there, 15% tax. They ship things here. They get a 15% credit, but no tax at our end. So there's a lot of talk about a border adjustment tax. I I would go for it in a minute. So those are uh, some of the more obvious things that that should be done and and are being discussed, and I, I hope most of them will be done.
0: That's pretty phenomenal. I, you know, it's, it's interesting because I learned something new every time. So I was aware of the VAT, um, the value added tax and, um, but I never really, I guess I didn't really view that as a tariff, but it absolutely, that's exactly what it is. It's really a <coughs> something to make, uh, the, native country if you will more competitive versus the outside so we don't do anything like that so people can ship product here they don't have to pay anything whatsoever in order to sell products to Well, you.
1: well there is a tariff entirely separate subject duty okay. tariff which which averages about 4% coming in here and and I think averages 6 7 8% going to other countries so we have a disadvantage at the tariff level. And then in addition, we have, they have this 15% tariff on everybody's things coming in, including ours. But we don't have any tariff on their stuff coming in here. So, so we we're just like you know, big, dumb, sloppy with our hands tied behind our back getting slapped around.
0: <laughs> so we've kind of done a really poor job of negotiating on behalf of our businesses and companies. It's kind of no wonder that they... Um, seem to feel com- uh, compelled to ship jobs overseas. Is, is that a direct driver of that of the uh, jobs leaving the country, or you know, or was that just nonsense? Was that just a, a bad decision that really didn't make sense and people didn't realize what they were doing?
1: The the the, the biggest driver of jobs leaving the country. It was and is the lower wage rates abroad. But back 15, 20 years ago, the Chinese wage rates were two percent or five percent of U.S. levels, and 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 I can't blame companies for going if their competitors went. You know, the price of the product went down so much that that they had to go where they were going out of business. But the uh, so they, they went for that reason. But now the Chinese wages have gone up dramatically. They've gone up fifteen percent a year for the last fifteen or twenty years you know they're getting to they're at the mexican level now for example mm-hmm. rather than a third or a fourth of the mexican level and and so it's uh it's it's no longer so clear anymore that that china is the best solution and so we what we do at the reshoring initiative our main offering is a tco total cost of ownership estimator software online on our website anybody can use it and it helps the company uh, switch from making a decision based on just the wage rate or the price, the X-Works price, to instead look at the total cost, which would add in the duty freight, uh, carrying cost of inventory, the impact on innovation of bringing engineering and manufacturing back together, the intellectual property risk, the uh, the lost orders because you can't deliver because you have two two month or three month lead times as opposed to one week lead time from somebody across the street. So all the twenty nine thirty different factors like that that get added in, and often make the difference and, and convince the company to come back. Wow, that's
0: great. Yeah, I saw that tool on your your site, um, and I'm going to ask you something kind of related to that, but I I didn't want to go down that road quite yet. I think I'm going to um, ask you some more questions about the those key those four items that um, affect the fairness. And I think let, let's talk a little bit about the corporate tax rates being too high because you always or you often hear I shouldn't say always you often hear people saying that you know well businesses don't pay enough taxes and you know we need to tax those companies more and. But it it is a global marketplace, and why are these companies sending large portions of their operations elsewhere uh, if our tax rates are competitive? Can you maybe summarize how that really works so that someone listening that might have asked that question before would have a a solid answer to it?
1: Now, finally, companies are in business to make a profit, and the profit that counts is the after-tax profit. So if you're Uh, nominal tax rate is 35% as it is now, that means you get to keep about two-thirds, much of which goes into capital investment, things like that. And if you get to um, keep, uh, if the tax rate comes down to 15% and you keep 85%, you've got that much more money to invest R&D, capital investment, pay your people, etc. It's generally agreed that Finally, corporations don't really pay taxes. They, they in effect collect them from their customers, from their employees, from their shareholders, and therefore the the corporate tax is an outmoded uh, method. It's it's sort of a sop to the liberals to make them feel that they're taking a good hit on the big company. But finally, what most Americans want is a good job, and if if the U.S. is the Most profitable place for companies to make things to supply to the U.S. market, then we'll be making 25, 30, 40% more. And everybody that wants to work will have a good job. I mean, it's as easy as that. And, and the total tax revenue that comes in from corporations is now very small. I think it's like 5% of government revenue. So to make it meaningful, to make the liberals feel really good, you'd have to double or triple it, in which case they'd all move out. And none of us would have jobs so <laughs>
0: wow yeah it doesn't work I don't think anybody could tolerate a tri- tripling tripling of their um, yeah tax rate
1: no the one the one thing though that I would say that the corporations have apparently legally but I'd say unethically uh, shifted their income to other countries they they they're very good at shifting it to the Cayman islands or or you know, Switzerland or Liechtenstein or somewhere like that where the tax rate is approaches zero and they set up corporations there, they shift the intellectual property like their brands there and then have their operations from all over the world pay royalties to that division in that country where the tax rates are low and thereby vacuum up most of the profits out of the uh, all the other countries and move them to that low tax rate country. So, so what's the solution? Number one, get our tax rate down, so there isn't so much motivation, especially to move the factories. But second, to find a way to keep them from from doing that income shifting, because it it, it it even if corporations don't really pay taxes, it's it's unethical and it, and it does tend to shift the income from one country to another.
0: Um. Very good. I, I appreciate that. That gives me a much easier answer because I'm always curious about that. Um, the dollar being too high. So we're the we're the safe haven. How, how do we how do we address that? You're going to tell Donald Trump uh, and his economics people what they might want to consider looking at to solve that problem. What would that look like?
1: Yeah, it's, it's again a difficult question because the the other uh, actions, such as tariffs and, and the value-added tax or border adjustment tax, most economists say would tend to raise the value of the dollar that would largely compensate and, and make up for the difference between, you know, it you, you would, you would help you with one hand and hurt you with the other. Mm. So so my solution uh, is one that's proposed by a Dr. John Hansen. He, he was an economist. Uh, he's an economist, and he used to work for the World Bank. And- uh, he has what's called a, he's a has a proposal for what's called a market access charge. So when when anyone individuals companies outside the US shifted money into the US just to sit here, not to invest in jobs, not to buy a factory, you know not to buy something, but just to sit in a bank here, uh, he would charge them something like a quarter percent a year. Or a quarter percent to come in, and he believes he's done the math, and he concludes that that he can fine tune that enough so that the uh, the desire to 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 buy dollars to, to store uh, money would come down, and the dollar could come down as uh, within reason as much as is needed. Hmm. And so, and and what you really want to do is get the dollar back at least to where it was maybe three or four years ago, which would be down by 25, 30%. And and that, that's that's a lot. You know, it makes our wages uh, certainly competitive with all of Europe and Japan and and start to become competitive with Korea and places like that. Now, And, and the average American would still uh, not feel very much difference because it would be more expensive to tr- travel abroad. But the uh they still don't buy enough of enough of what they spend is, is still not imports that it would make a huge difference in their cost of living.
0: I see. So basically, the net result would just be a much more level playing field, one that, you know, would at least give everybody a, a, a fighting chance, if you will. They, they wouldn't it wouldn't be so obvious uh, who would become the top. Uh, company manufacturing a given product, like you, it's almost a foregone conclusion with certain types of products that they're going to be manufactured more in Korea. For example, uh, you know, like the, I'm thinking of like the flat screens, LCD, you know, LCD screens, things yeah, no like question. that.
1: No, no question. So okay. it, would, it would it would give us a chance. Um, cost, price of living, cost of living would go up a little, but I, but it, it doesn't take too much uh, difference. To get the U.S. back in the game, so if the companies use something like our TCO estimator, they'll see that that you know maybe maybe when the cost gap closes by ten points or something like that, all of a sudden the U.S. company is competitive as long as it looks at all the costs. All right. So that's, that's an, let me give you a good example of that. We we there's a company outside of Chicago called mori corp m-o-r-e-y corp they make they populate circuit boards they're an ems company and uh, they came to me nine months ago and they were about to lose an order uh, from a u.s customer and uh, to a chinese competitor lower price chinese competitor and uh, the vp sales and i did the tco estimator uh, calculation from the perspective of the customer and Maury took it in to the customer, showed it to him, and I've got a quote from him saying that that was key to saving a $60 million order. Wow. So any, anybody who's hearing this, if they're competing with uh, imports and being told their prices are too high, got to get their price down 10 20%, got to get down to the Chinese price, et cetera, et cetera, they've got to say, no, how about if I get uh, down to or maybe up to the Chinese total cost. Let's look at all the costs so that we, we optimize for your
0: company. That's phenomenal. Um, and you know, I, I find that a lot of times, and maybe it just depends on who you're talking to. It's really hard for people to, to actually accept those types of calculations it's almost as if there's a disbelief that how could that possibly really be that expensive and maybe this is on a less sophisticated level than people who are ordering things at such quantities but i i hear frequent complaints from businesses about you know maybe they're being undercut on a price or something like that and it's very difficult well now I'm call you have me. yeah
1: we're happy to happy to help uh the uh, and one way to, to make clear that it's true, if you, if you go on our website under uh, 2015 data, mm-hmm. uh, you can see all the reasons that companies gave why they reshored. And typically, they're the reasons that are quantified in the total cost of ownership estimator. They're the freight and the duty, the carrying cost of inventory, the, the uh, uh, advantages that we have with skilled workforce relative to some countries. Uh, intellectual property, all these things, those are the reasons they came back. And so the, when the companies eventually, let's say, saw the truth and started to recognize all those costs, it was enough to drive them back.
0: You know, you mentioned one there that I think really nailed me recently. I just, I was very surprised the intellectual property cost. And what I was learning was that it was a documentary of some kind. I wish I could remember the name of it. But I was learning that basically these companies that had really advocated heavily to bring China into the WTO and all that um, eventually, you know, outsourced large amounts of production. There was one company that literally their products ceased to be made at one point. They were in in essence, they were being held hostage by a, a, a factory in China or the Chinese government. Or, I don't know exactly what it was. Um, is that is that a topic that you feel comfortable discussing? Are you familiar with this case or other cases like that?
1: I don't know about that case in, per, per se. We have many cases, probably 50 or 60, where intellectual property was a cause of the company coming back. Uh, fellows was famous sounded sort of like the case you're giving fellows to shredder company
0: yes it was fellows that was the one (laughs) 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 yeah they got really they were weren't they just completely unable to produce product for uh eventually eventually they started up production
1: in the u.s again and they got they got themselves back together but 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 there's a lot of cases like that i guess the good news is that now now china is starting to do inventions and have patents and and so their uh, the value of intellectual property is rising and their protection of it is rising because they have something to protect
0: ah so then that that creates kind of a an equalizer in terms of if yeah. you're not respecting mine then why should i respect yours kind of thing
1: it seems like they i've never read this per se but the implication is that in their legal system uh, patents owned by foreign companies and patent owned by Chinese companies are both increasingly protected.
0: Oh, that's great news. Yeah. So, so I guess there is some truth to the um, argument that eventually our, our involvement in these foreign countries will, will eventually level the playing field. But, I, but at the same time, I would say at what cost and why should we bear the burden of that? But that's more of a, just a comment. Um, right. I'm really glad that you mentioned at number one, the skilled workforce, because since I've become involved with this, that is something that everybody talks about. The manufacturers talk about jobs that they've had available that they can't fill, and they've had to come up with other ways. I've seen initiatives here in Northern California, where there's a group in out of Chico. Uh, they were my very first episode, actually. Um, the grow manufacturing, they literally started to work with education and bringing everybody together to align the skills with the jobs that they had in order to ensure the future of those manufacturers. It was it was that dire of a situation. So um, I noticed the federal government has even. Um, uh, stepped up a little bit and provided grants towards training uh, apprenticeship programs for the uh, for various things as well. So it seems like there's momentum. What can you tell me about what you know about that issue? What's kind of a general status of that? And what are we doing right? And what do we still need to do? (laughs) Uh, My conclusion is that right now we're sort of hanging
1: on by our fingernails you know there's just enough skilled workforce more or less to get the work done I, I don't think I don't think the u.s. loses a lot of business because we can't deliver because of shortage of skilled workforce so uh, we're just there but with the baby boomers retiring and the low rate of training for the last 20 30 years there's this huge gap and so the and so the question is will the uh, new uh, training uh, programs accelerate enough to make up for both the uh, loss due to the baby boomers retiring and the growth that's coming, and and also the growth in advanced manufacturing, which takes higher skills and fewer people just putting on lug nuts and doing, you know, s- simpler mechanical things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most studies say that we will have a shortfall of something like 2 million people in manufacturing, which would be uh, 15% or something like that, uh, by about 2030. So, so severe shortfalls. Now, good, good news. some of the good news, uh, uh, you were alluding to apprentice programs, the federal government. One of the, one of the good things Obama did, he, he did support these things. And so there, there were some good grants that came out to accelerate apprenticeship programs, and uh, NIMS, which is the uh, one of the credentialing organizations, National Institute for Metalworking Skills, had and I assume still has federal money available to subsidize companies to, to start uh, manufacturing, especially machining, tool making, et cetera, apprenticeship programs. So if anybody is interested in that, I, I'd encourage them to contact NIMS. And uh, I'm, I'm on the board there. They can say, H- Harry sent us. <laughs> okay. yeah. And they're, they're, I think, in, they're outside of uh, Washington, D.C. In, in Virginia. So you, you, you can find them. So that's good news. Uh, similarly, the certificate programs, certificates being awarded by NIMS, also by MSSC, Manufacturing Skills Standards. I think it's coalition, uh, might be council. Uh, Again, Washington, D.C. based and American Welding Society, AWS, uh, number of credentials awarded has been growing at 10 or 15 percent a year for the last 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. So there's there's some good signs of growth. There's a a lot of high school and community college programs starting up or being reborn, Uh, companies starting apprenticeships because they know they have to. So a a lot of good things happening, but where where in Switzerland, maybe 60% of the high school kids go into apprenticeships. In the U.S., maybe 5% do. And here, most of them that do are into construction. And, all you know, maybe, I don't know, a tenth of 1% of the high school population goes into manufacturing mm-hmm. uh, apprenticeships. In Switzerland, probably 10% goes in. So a factor of 100 difference, something like that. So it's wow. a huge disadvantage to us. Uh, you know, it's so bad – uh, I, I know one of the Swiss machine tool companies, and they told me that when they're, when they're d- designing a project for the U.S. or for Germany, and it's a complex part uh, to be machined, multi-axis machining, uh, in the U.S., they'll break it down into two steps, maybe on two different machines. Uh, resin, for Germany or Switzerland, they do it in one step with more complex programming because the, the, the programmers in Europe are more skilled, the operators are more skilled, and they can handle the more complex process. So, so, so we, we just we don't get the productivity because we don't have the skills.
0: Wow, that hurts. That's a little kick in the gut right there.
1: Yeah. So uh, one thing I'd, I'd like to get in, got, uh, the uh, reshoring initiative, not-for-profit, uh, uh, www.reshorenow.org. And anybody that comes there can find data on who's reshored in your state or in your industry or the industry you want to sell to. Uh, You can find uh, the uh, TCO estimator and companies can use it to make better sourcing decisions or as a sales tool when they're selling against imports to convince the customer that uh, to to quantify all the advantages of domestic.
0: Great. I I appreciate that. Now, I'm going to prompt you again in a few minutes, um, but certainly before we wrap up, to find all the places that you guys can be reached, we'll definitely get those out. I like to do it that, like to do that at the end, also just to kind of, you know, right as people are wrapping up. It's kind of their call to action. I'm going to go. That's check good. It out. I've,
1: I've had a couple of interviews where. I figured it was at the end and then it didn't happen.
0: (laughs) Ah, well, I would say you're dealing with a pro, but you're just dealing with a guy who's passionate about manufacturing today. (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, I want to talk about another unintended consequence of offshoring, and it has to do with environmental regulation because, um, you know, uh, we don't play by the same rules, right? Um, We have different rules. But when a when a manufacturing job is in the United States, we adhere to some of the strictest standards for environmental protection of any country in the world. When we outsource a job, there's a tremendous environmental impact. And do you, have you has your group done some work to quantify that to identify the um, you know the damage that is occurring to the environment as a result of a off, offshoring a job.
1: I'd say there's, uh, there's so just some interesting facts on that. First, I've read that the Chinese environmental rules are just as tough or tougher than ours; they're just not enforced.
0: Mm. Okay, <laughs> okay. So not worth the paper it's printed on, basically.
1: <laughs> yes, or the wand it's printed on.
0: <laughs> yeah. The, uh, uh,
1: so the. One thing that we're we're, uh, worked, I've read a fair number of cases of companies that went to China or similar places because the uh, the processes, the most efficient process, the lowest cost process for making the part, some kind of painting or coating or you know something like that, uh, plating, uh, it was impossibly expensive to. Control the environmental effects here, whereas it was they just ignore it there. So, so, so we've certainly lost some work for that. And and you could say, well, I'm, that's good work to lose because it pollutes their their country instead of our country. Um, but the uh, another aspect of it is um, we we've been trying to quantify, and so we're uh, developing something called the corporate social responsibility estimator. So, where our current TCO estimator Calculates the impact on the firm's P&L. The corporate social responsibility estimator would impact the would quantify the impact on the country and on the world. So it would look at if I bring the work back, it will create so many jobs in my company, so many jobs in suppliers. Everybody pays taxes. Nobody takes welfare anymore. So the uh, the country's P&L gets better by so much. And separately, when the work is shifted back here. Uh, The factory is cleaner here, and especially the electricity production here is much cleaner. Over there, it's dirty coal. You see the people with the masks. Here, it's clean. And so for every uh, product shipped back here, it's so many fewer kilowatt hours made there. And therefore, uh, the world environment is enhanced, both from the factory, the electricity generation, and not having to drag tons of stuff halfway across the world so we're at the moment we're seeking a foundation to help fund us to complete that and so far have been told it's a nice idea but no
0: no (laughs) (laughs) that the the right um the right organization just hasn't come along so if somebody's listening and they hear this and (laughs) they want to have an impact that's a place where they can do it and there any donation they make is tax deductible right
1: Anyway, it really, for, for a company, anything you spend is just it pretty much is tax deductible if it's legal. Uh, and for so if they call it a donation uh, or, or call it a marketing expense, I don't care. I'll put their name with ours on it and they can call it a marketing expense if they want to. Wonderful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so um, I'm going to shift back to economics for a minute um, because I've been working more and more through this uh, effort with – people in economic development or people focusing on economic development. And one of the key things, and it's it's interesting because there's different ways that people involved in that industry calculate things, but th- the most compelling way that I've seen to tell the, the uh, story or of the benefit of a manufacturing job is in the form of the direct output, the direct economic output. Um, I, have had other people talk about, um, at another guest to s- talk about, there was a multiplier effect for every manufacturing job. There'd maybe be an one and a half more jobs, uh, related to it. Um, what have you guys used and utilized any tools on that side of things to help, um, uh, you know, encourage, uh, people to understand the benefit of reshoring these jobs and how, nope. how do you go about that?
1: Yeah, we certainly talk about that. Um, let me say first on the multiplier effect, may uh, manufacturers alliance for productivity, something rather, again, outside of Washington, um, has come out with an analysis maybe nine months ago that says that that multiplier effect is 3.6 for manufacturing rather than the traditional 1.5. Okay. So that's better. Bigger multipliers, better, bigger is better. And, uh, and so that, that's good news. Uh, we uh, I I think I think the economic developers and the governments around the country and around the world recognize that manufacturing hits above its weight and that uh, and that's why all these other countries have managed their tax systems, uh, their their incentives, their uh, training programs, everything else to to to, to max to optimize manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And we have not because we were the. We were the Goliath of the world uh, forty fifty years ago after World War II, and we didn't have to take care of the the farm, right. <laughs> so, so we let the farm go to hell, so to speak. So so uh, uh, we we do work with economic developers with uh, uh, we specifically had pro- programs with Mississippi and Pennsylvania, and had quite good success training the uh, economic developers and the MEPs manufacturing extension partnerships to uh, go out and uh, get companies to look at uh, what they'd offshore, find where they were having problems, apply total cost of ownership, and in some cases decide to bring work back. So we had pretty good success in both of those regions. Uh, We've spoken in 10, 20 states to the economic developers or the MEPs. We work with the IEDC, International Economic Development Council. You know, we consult with them to help them with reshoring. And, and so we're, economic developers increasingly are learning about this. Uh, if you've got anybody who's in a manufacturing extension partnership, I think I'm speaking at their annual conference coming up in this summer in uh, in Denver.
0: Great. No. Yeah. Wonderful. Um i'm gonna uh, I'd like to kind of ask you it's more of a personal question, but it's not super personal <clears throat> I'm just curious at what point did you because we all kind of have that tipping point I mean if you're someone like yourself I mean obviously you're not in this for the money um what point did you just say you know I need to do this 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 has to happen and and if it's if I don't do it then nobody's gonna do it so I better just do this
1: well there there's the practical and the Emotional answer. So the practical answer, I'd been president of uh, of Charmé, Adji Charmé, for 22 years, and the, the parent company decided it was time for someone else, and I had three-year phase-out, and so I had a good time to start this. That was the practical answer. The emotional answer, I grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is right across the, the river from New York City, and the biggest thing in town was Singer Sewing Machine. And back 100, 120 years ago, everybody had a sewing machine. And all over the world, there were singers, U.S. dominated world manufacturing. And uh, my grandfather was a foreman. Dad was a, ran a third of the factory. I worked there summers. And I drove past 10 years ago, and it was all gone. Everything's made outside the country. Gosh. So I, I pulled over and I cried for what the, the family, the city, the state, the country had lost. And when I I thought on it, when I, I used to sell foundry equipment, then I sold machine tools, and I drove past factory after factory of the the shoe equipment makers and the textile equipment makers and the machine tool makers and the foundry equipment makers, and they're all out of business. You know, we mm. lost all of that to offshore. And and uh, I said, "Damn, somebody's got to do this." And you know, I've got enough money, and I've got the skills and the knowledge and, and the contacts that. Uh, I guess it's up to me, and unfortunately now Donald's Donald's on board.
0: Yeah, he. Well, um, I think that's one really great thing about this election is it brought to light. I think a constituency that had been silent, that had really did not have a voice, and probably since the seventies when this all started to, to unfold had really not had any clout to, to rectify the situation. So, uh, I was, I was very pleased that this, uh, this, this very issue has become an issue that is being discussed almost in a household manner now and no longer just kind of hiding in the fringes. So I think, um, I think there is a good opportunity to really move forward and I'm excited about that opportunity and what it means for my fellow Americans and my, you know, my, my child and his children and, you know, your, your, okay. you know, any, anybody's, uh, future, uh, kids and whatnot. Yep.
1: But when you look, you know, I watch CNBC and Fox and, and just sometimes CNN and the rest of them and 90% of the commentators, the economists, the politicians, the experts, call what Trump's doing protectionist, it's going to kill the economy, we're going to be much worse off. I mean, they're stuck in an old, uh, I'd say outdated economic view of the world that has failed the country. Uh, Just Here's a cute little thing we've done. You've you've heard about the Carrier case with the work that Trump uh, encouraged them and they brought back 700 jobs or kept 700 jobs here. Mm -hmm. So when we see an article like that, uh, our social media lady, Sandy, puts in a comment that goes like this Here's a message to companies that are thinking of announcing offshoring. You should come to our website and use our TCO estimator. You may find that it makes more profits if you stay here. You have to ask yourself is it better to do the math today or get a tweet from Donald tomorrow? <laughs>
0: That is fantastic. You know, I've been following Sandy on social media for I think several years. I don't I'm not exactly sure. I just remember seeing her tweets and her posts on LinkedIn. I think she does a really good job of telling the story and identifying all of the the articles and things and and not putting the sensationalized CNN and you know, the, you know whatever all the the main networks I don't really follow them, to be honest. I think the media is really a tarnished um, center at this point in in America. And it's really unfortunate because I don't think there's too many organizations that are really focused on um, journalism. I think they're more focused on activism or just ratings. And Mm -hmm. that's that's really unfortunate. But um, it's it's up and down through society. There's a lot of noise a lot of noise and I try to I try to avoid the noise and just focus on the the positives and just uh the stories that are out there. And and you guys do a lot of story you you share a lot of stories and and so that Oh that's,
1: yeah, we're we're blessed we have uh, uh we're, we're probably quoted somewhere in the media every day.
0: That's fantastic.
1: Something something like, I mean it's – you know, Donald gets more coverage than we do. <laughs> Madonna, Madonna gets more coverage than we do. Yeah, but,
0: well, maybe one day. <laughs> we're doing pretty well. yeah, that's good.
1: That's good. We're, so we're, we're honored to be with you, Joe.
0: Well, it's uh, your, your kindred spirits. I mean, when, when I um, first was organizing the Manufacturing Advocates podcast, one of the very first names I put down was Reshoring Initiative. And I didn't reach out to um, you guys right away. Because I like like I had said before, I had a lot of there was a lot of local companies and local organizations that I really wanted to get to first. Um, It was more personal and um, then just kind of built from there. But uh, this is this is great. This is a great opportunity for us. You guys are uh, clearly difference makers for U.S. manufacturing. I mean, it's uh, it's really an honor to be interviewing here today. I do have
1: let me throw one one last thing in. i have sure I've reached out somewhat to Trump's organization And offered our help because because when he's arguing with these companies, if he can if I could come in and show them, they'll be more profitable. His arguments a lot easier. And uh, so I've reached out and haven't gotten any responses. So if anybody out there has any uh, any good connections to uh, Mr. Trump or Mr. Ryan, you know, anybody that can uh, help us offer our help, uh, we'd be honored to be connected so we could do that.
0: I, I think that would be extremely wise and very beneficial for them to do just that. So I hope you do make that um, uh, introduction. Uh, I'm going to ask you, it's kind of a general sort of big question. I think you've largely answered this question already uh, throughout the course of the interview. And, and we're just about running out of time here. But I want to I find out, what do you want your legacy to be in, in five or ten years from now when you're, when you're looking at, when when you're looking back uh, at what you've accomplished, what, what what do you want that to look like?
1: Well, I guess realistically, uh, well, so, certainly the objective is is the bringing back of the manufacturing and the manufacturing jobs, and the uh, we, we measure it by the trade deficit, which is 500 billion, about 4 million manufacturing jobs, and I, I'd like to say in 10 years we'd eliminated the trade deficit, but we clearly won't have the skilled workforce to add those 4 million relatively high-tech jobs over a 10-year period. So so I'd say 10 years from now, my legacy would be that we're halfway there. We brought back 2 million. We cut the trade deficit in half. And 20 years from now that we brought back the 4 million and eliminated the trade deficit. And and I'd I'd like to think I'm I'm still there helping make it happen.
0: Absolutely. I think, um, your, your organization's very credible and you have, um, uh, you have a really great approach and I really respect your approach and how you're going about doing this. It, it seems like everything is done. Like you would expect someone who has an engineering background mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. You're working with actual numbers. You're working with actual data. Uh, I think you're doing the right things. So again, I applaud you, sir, for your efforts. Um, where can uh, where else can people find you besides the res- Reshore Now? Uh, well, I'll let, you, I'll let you give the rundown. Give them so a little call. Uh,
1: yeah, the, the website is the www.reshorenow.org. We are the Reshoring Initiative. Uh, you can uh, email me if you like, harry.moser, M-O-S-E-R, at reshorenow.org. Uh, you can call me at 847-726-2975. We'd love to hear from companies that have reshored and love to hear from those that have you know, offshored and, and think it's time to reevaluate and we can help them make that decision. So uh,
0: any, any of those things, we'd, we'd be delighted to hear. Wonderful. Well, I thank you for your time, Harry, and I um, wish you incredible success in your endeavor.
1: Well, you're helping make it happen. You're, you're an important part of the game.
0: Great. Right. Thank you. thank, Thank you for listening, everyone. Have a great day.